This podcast is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Tonight on 360, can a president get away with murder? That question and the chilling answer got in court today as the former president makes a case for presidential immunity and raises the specter of criminal impunity. Also tonight, the grandmother who bought the election lied. Does she still believe it? Going into her first night of a five-year sentence. And later, meet the man who's found an airliner's missing door plug in his own backyard. His find could help investigators figure out what severely damaged Alaska Airlines Flight 1282. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. We begin tonight keeping them honest with the former president's striking claim in court today that nothing a president does in office can be criminally prosecuted unless he or she is first impeached by the House and convicted by the Senate. That's what his attorney, John Sauer, told a three-judge panel of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals today. And what's more, in a remarkable exchange with one of them, Judge Florence Pan, he conceded that the principle would apply even if a president ordered a hit on a political opponent. I asked you a yes, no, yes or no question. Could a president who ordered SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival who was not impeached would he be subject to criminal prosecution? If he were impeached and convicted first. And so, so your answer is, is no. Is. Well, that's the kind of thought experiment judges often pose to probe the limits of an argument before them. Rarely do they get such a breathtaking answer, according to Ellie Honig, who you'll hear from in a minute. The exchange prompted James Pierce, the attorney representing special counsel Jack Smith, to ask, quote, what kind of world are we living in if that hypothetical holds true? For his part, the former president says suggested that losing his case would create, quote, bedlam in the country. What he would not do is answer the following question about any violence that might come with it. You just used the word bedlam. Will you tell your supporters now, no matter what, no violence? In a moment, our legal and political team join us to talk about where this goes next and how it could reshape not just the presidential race, but the power of the presidency for generations to come. First, CNN's Paula Reid with more of this consequential day in court. President Trump traveled to Washington Tuesday to watch arguments in a federal appeals court hearing over whether he should be shielded from criminal prosecution. I feel that as a president, you have to have immunity. Very simple. Trump was not required to be in attendance, but was in court to witness the three-judge panel express skepticism of his legal team's claim that he cannot be prosecuted for his actions unless he is first impeached and convicted by Congress. Could a president order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival? That's an official act in order to SEAL Team 6? He, he would have to be and would speedily be, you know, uh, uh, impeached and convicted before the criminal but prosecution. I asked you a yes no, yes or no question. There is a political process that would have to occur under our, the structure of our Constitution, which would require impeachment and conviction by the Senate in these exceptional cases. Trump's lawyers argued that when trying to overturn the 2020 election, Trump was acting in his official capacity. To authorize the prosecution of a president for his official acts would open a Pandora's box from which this nation may never recover. Trump's lawyer also warned that if this near absolute immunity was not recognized, there could be a possibility of vindictive prosecutions against political rivals. It would authorize, for example, the indictment of President Biden in the Western District of Texas after he leaves office for mismanaging the border, allegedly. The special counsel rejected these arguments, noting that charges were brought in this case because of what they describe as extraordinary conduct. 
Never before has there been allegations that a sitting president has, with private individuals and using the levers of power, sought to fundamentally subvert the Democratic Republic and the electoral system. And argued that impeachment and conviction through a political process should not be required before a criminal prosecution. I think it would be awfully scary if there weren't some sort of mechanism by which to reach that uh, in, criminally. Paula, so what happens next? Well, Anderson, it appears unlikely that Trump is going to prevail here. But even if he loses, he can still ask the entire circuit to hear his case. Now, that would require a majority of the judges uh, in this circuit to agree to hear the case. It's unclear if they'll do that. But remember, this strategy is as much about delay as it is about the constitutional questions. And look, if that doesn't work, he can still appeal to the Supreme Court. But it's unclear if they're going to want to weigh in here. Remember, they were already weighing this other question related to Trump about ballot eligibility. But the longer that Trump can draw this out and the longer it takes to get the final answer on this question of immunity, the less likely it is that special counsel Jack Smith will be able to bring his election subversion case to trial. So even if Trump loses on the merits here, Anderson, he still may win on the tactics. Paul Reed, thanks very much. Joining us now, senior political commentator, former Trump campaign advisor David Urban, also seen as Caitlin Collins, anchor of the source at the top of the next hour. With us as well, CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig and Cardozo Law School's Jessica Roth. Like Ellie Honig, she's a former federal prosecutor. So, Ellie, what were your big takeaways? You know, anytime you're a lawyer and you find yourself vouching for a preposterous, ridiculous outcome, it's a good sign that you're in trouble. And Trump's team today took a surprising position that I think landed them in a spot where they were arguing that it could be that the president orders murder and cannot be prosecuted. They, they sort of invented this argument that first you have to be impeached by the House, then convicted by the Senate, and only then can you be prosecuted. And I, I want people to understand, there's no magic to these formulations. We're in new ground here legally. It's not like there's some code hidden in the Constitution. What the judges and maybe someday the justices are going to be asking is, is this workable? Does this lead to an outrageous outcome? And if it does, I think you're out of luck. And I, I just don't think Trump's lawyers are, are going to win based off that argument. Because, I mean, under this absolute immunity theory that, yeah. that the Trump team is, is pushing, if a president committed crimes while in office and wasn't impeached, they would get a, there would be no mechanism for accountability. Exactly. You can think of the worst scenario possible, assassination, selling military secrets. And their position is, unless and until he's not only impeached, impeached and then convicted by the Senate, He's scot-free. By the way, the better answer to that question about the assassination would have been, of course, he can be prosecuted. So a president could, I mean, could a president kill his valet? And if, right. well, if it, it wasn't done in the White House lawn and there was some question about what, who did it? Exactly. By the <laughs> argument that Donald Trump's team made today, he would be scot-free. But the better argument would be, of course, he could be prosecuted because it's outside the scope of yeah. the presidency. But they, they made this bizarre turn. It left yeah. them in a bad spot. You know, Anderson, I, when I was listening to this, you know, I, I, I'm not a prosecutor, but, you know, I was a, f a rec recovering lawyer and I was listening. I was thinking to myself, stick to the stick to the official acts argument. It's a much tighter argument and, and you have much more to argue there to say, listen, he was he was looking into this investigation. He's investigating this election because it was part of his official duties as president. Right. To make sure there's free and fair elections. And it's all part of this this giant scope as opposed to coming up with this 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 construct, which is clearly just wacky. Well, Jessica, I mean, do you think there's any validity to the Trump team? argument here? 
not with respect to this hypothetical of whether or not he could be prosecuted for ordering SEAL Team 6 to kill his political rival. On the larger question, though, when we take a step back um, from the, that particular hypothetical, too, is there anything that's troubling about the idea of potentially political uh, being prosecutions? He's, his argument is they would be political right. of a former president. I do think that's a question that courts would want to think about seriously. And for that reason, actually, interestingly, the special counsel said, look, you don't have to agree with Judge Ch Chutkin that there is no such thing as presidential immunity um, from criminal prosecution in all circumstances, full stop. You could just say that in the circumstances presented here, it is very clear there is no immunity. And we're going to leave open for another day the possibility that in some very narrow set of exceptional circumstances, there might be presidential immunity. And he gave the example of a president who, on very short notice, has to decide whether to order a drone strike, right? They so said that might be the kind of situation where it's a national military interest at stake and there's very little time where a court might say, we're reluctant to say categorically there could never be presidential immunity. But that's not this case, they said. And so if you're inclined to reach this question at all beyond just affirming Judge Chutkin's decision, which was categorical, just leave it open for another day and decide here there's just no question. There were attorneys for Trump argued something different after the second, during the second impeachment after the insurrection. I want to play some of what was said in court. There's a quote in the congressional record in which your counsel, I'm sorry, your client said through counsel, no former office holder is immune from investigation and prosecution. Investigation is what and there's no immunity to. Well, uh, uh, that may be true of subordinate officers, but as to the principal officer, the president, he is immune unless he is impeached and convicted. He, Again, it comes back to the point he we was, made. He was president at the time, and his position was that no former office holder is immune. And in fact, the argument was there's no need to vote for impeachment because we have this backstop, which is criminal prosecution, and it seems that many senators relied on that in voting to acquit. Don't. I mean, <laughs> yeah, look, it's, it, it's so when I, when I was, uh, I was Arnold Specter's chief of staff 100 years ago, right, in the Clinton administration, during the Clinton impeachment, my former boss had an op-ed that ran in the New York Times and said, don't. We don't need to impeach him. He could be tried when he's off, you know, when he's when he's out of office. That's been the, that's been the, the you know, the, the, the line. You don't have to have an impeachment. Obviously, the Trump people argued that as well. We don't need to impeach him. There's a backstop here. This the court system. Right. And you're on the record. You're on the record. Caitlin, what are you hearing from Trump's team about? I don't think today went the way they expected it to go. I mean, I thought that they would go went into this thinking that a lot of the arguments would be what Trump has been arguing and what they articulated in their written brief, which was that the actions that he took after the election between then and January 6th were duties as president, that, that he was doing is to make sure that the laws of the land, the election laws, were faithfully carried out. That is their argument. Obviously, people disagree with that. But that's the argument that they had been making, that it wasn't electioneering, that he, as he had now said, which he was not saying at the time, the, he knew the election was over and that that's what he was doing in his official duties. It went into a complete different way, and they essentially ran into a brick wall with these arguments, not only with Bruce Castor's quote right there that the judge was referencing, Judge Pan, I think, um, providing a really difficult time for Trump's attorneys. And I don't also think it went the way that Trump thought it was going to go from the optics perspective either, because instead of it kind of being this big uh, showcase moment of him going into court again, being able to use it, which was a purely political decision, I was told. You didn't see him going into court, and instead you saw his attorney kind of getting browbeat by the judges with these deeply skeptical questions of their arguments, and then Trump's brief comments at the hotel afterward where he just, you know, continued to repeat his election lies, which have been debunked. Ellie, I mean, how quickly will an appeals court rule, and what, 
what are the next steps? I think we're going to see a ruling within two weeks. They expedited this, right? And, and now, after they rule, I think we have to watch for two things to happen. First of all, Trump, assuming he loses, I think it's quite clear he will. He's going to try to take this up to the Supreme Court eventually, but he has a long time to do that. You have 90 days to even ask the Supreme Court to take the case. And so to head that off, there was a bit at the end today where Jack Smith's team asked the Court of Appeals to issue the mandate. And what that means, translated to plain English, is send this back down to the district court, the trial court, and let them get back on track. Because remember, they've been on pause ever since this appeal started. So Jack Smith's team wants to let the district court resume its pretrial preparations. And the appeals court can do that? Yes, they can do that. And we may actually be in a situation where you have two things happening parallel. You have litigation going in the Supreme Court and the district court carrying on. But Trump's team is going to ask the Supreme Court to stop the trial court. It, Jessica, I mean, is this something the Supreme Court would weigh? I mean, it does seem like an important question to answer. It's an incredibly important question. And I think that's the, re the strongest reason for the court to take the case. I mean, this is an important legal question. Um, it's never been decided before. Uh, on the other hand, I'm sure they wouldn't relish having to get into the middle of this if they think that the, uh, the D.C. Circuit doesn't cry out for being overturned. Maybe they just leave it. But I think a lot of it's going to depend on how this opinion is written, how broad it is in its, uh, in its scope. Um, if it's really broad and makes a categorical statement that there's no such thing as presidential immunity in any circumstances from criminal prosecution, that might be something that the court thinks it has to address. If it's more limited and essentially says, look, there might be in some circumstances, but not in the circumstances presented here, or we're going to reach the question of whether these were official acts or not, maybe the court leaves that be. So, and he's going to be, uh, the former president is going to be in court again Thursday on the, uh, the civil fraud trial. I mean, you've got the Iowa caucus is coming up. He's choosing to be here in these at, the, at these court cases. He clearly thinks both from a fundraising standpoint and from a political standpoint, I mean, that's where the cameras are, that there's a benefit for them being there. Well, and they're fundraising off of this today. Eric Trump was sending out an email via their fundraising saying, my father's in court right now. He's not able to be in Iowa. He was choosing to right. be in the in courthouse today. He's choosing to be here in New York on Thursday for those closing arguments in the civil fraud case as he's chosen to be there the many other times. There will... It, if this does happen, if the Supreme Court does rule on this, as this trial does go forward, there will be days when he does not get to choose, where he does have to be there in court. But I do think it speaks to the point that right now they think this helps him. But what we keep hearing from Republicans who are challenging him for this nomination, Governor Ron DeSantis, namely, is that maybe this is helpful to him in the primary. It's not going to be helpful in the general election. That could be the time when he doesn't actually have the choice. He has to go to court. I, I just say real quickly, the, the point on delay, the tactic on delay, remember that we're up against the September 5th, I think is the date the magic date, right, where you're 90 days out. Is that roughly the, 60 DOJ, or 90, 60 depending days, the, the, the yeah. DOJ guidelines and when you start this? So the delay, delay, delay. That's, that's, that's a friend for the president here. David Urban, Caitlin Collins, Ellie Honig, Jessica Roth, thanks very much. Uh, Caitlin's going to be at the top of the hour on The Source. Coming up next, one woman, a grandmother, who believed the former president's voter fraud claims and stormed the Capitol. The question tonight, as she reports to prison, does she still believe those lies? And later, the latest sign the former president might have a race on his hands with Nikki Haley in New Hampshire, at least, what new CNN polling reveals ahead. All There Is with Anderson Cooper is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Grief is a human experience. Shouldn't the care we receive feel human too? That's why Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support anytime, in person or virtually, with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure that they get the help that they need. So no matter what stage of grief your employees may be in, there's always a person ready to listen. Stressful times can lead many to bottle up complex feelings, especially at work. 59% of those suffering say nothing, 
This can have unexpected and serious mental and physical health implications. And with Evernorth's data-driven risk monitoring tools, they can help spot challenges early and step in to guide individuals to care before they undergo any more suffering. Each person's grief is as unique as they are, which is why Evernorth offers a wide range of personalized behavioral solutions to meet the needs of every member that they serve. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there, guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. In his brief statement after court today, the former president again referred to a document he's been promoting lately that he says proves his allegations of voter fraud. It doesn't. The claims in the document are unproven or debunked. It's clear, though, that three years ago, millions of people did believe such lies. On January 6th, thousands acted violently on it. And today, one of them, a 42-year-old grandmother, reported to a federal prison in West Virginia to begin serving a long sentence. Sinus Donia Sullivan recently spoke with her about whether she still believes in the lies that turned her into a capital rioter. How do you feel when you watch this? You know, I think I, I'm more numb when I look at this stuff. It's like surreal to me. I mean, look how angry I look. You'd admit this is a bad look. Totally. Yeah. You know how dumb I feel when I look at this picture like, oh my goodness. Rachel Powell, also known as the Pink Hat Lady, is about to begin a five-year prison sentence for her role in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. She's a mom of eight and grandmother of six, and she's spent most of the last three years under home detention in rural Pennsylvania. Is this what you expected from an insurrectionist, a terrorist? How do I have time to plan an insurrection when my life is busy like this? Making pie, raising babies. Why did you decide to go to D.C. on January 6th? Well, how often does a president ask you to come to a rally? Doesn't happen. At some point, this goes from peaceful protest to you having an ice axe in your hand, mm -hmm. um, breaking a window, trying to get into the Capitol. How did that happen? It got violent, and it was violent yeah. for a while. And I'm completely in pain. And... Um, because you had been hit? Oh man, I had been hit with a baton, I'd been grabbed and thrown, I'd been sprayed, I mean, my whole body was on fire. I don't think there was rational thinking in my head at that point. I didn't have an ice axe that passed through the crowd, somebody put it in my hands, and it was only in my hands long enough to take out that window pane, and yet I'd been charged with a deadly weapon. Somebody really, give um, you the ice axe? Yeah. Who? I don't know. You don't remember? I don't know who they were. Yeah. Um, I don't know where it came from. I don't know where it went. I grew up, and I guess you probably did too, of, of being told, you know, if a police officer tells you to do something, you should probably do it. Mm -hmm. That didn't happen that day, of course. The police were telling you guys to go away. They never actually told us to go away. I never had an officer look at me and say, you need to leave or I'm going to arrest you. 
Footage like this of Rachel seen here in the fur hooded coat pushing against a police line and messages she posted on social media condoning violence ahead of January 6 were used by prosecutors to argue that Rachel wasn't just a peaceful protester who got caught up in the chaos of the day. Do you regret that day? Um, I regret, I have a lot of remorse for ruining my family's life. I mean, in one day, I destroyed everything. For really, for nothing. I don't have remorse for attending protests. I don't have remorse for speaking out and saying that I believe that the election is stolen. I do have remorse for breaking a window and destroying my whole family's life and for thinking irrationally and not realizing, like, why don't you just sit down at this protest? A federal judge convicted Rachel on nine counts, including destruction of government property, obstruction of an official proceeding, and engaging in physical violence in a restricted building or grounds. I'm sorry, it's like my last weekend before I go in. But, um, like, I love my children so much, and it's still like the last thing that they can take from me. That'll be the hard part. And I don't deserve this. And my kids don't deserve it. Like, have we not been through enough? Like, that's the last thing that we have to lose is each other. Prosecutors said Rachel showed nothing but contempt for the court and legal system. You said, um, you know, that, that, that you feel dumb, set up. Yep. Duped. Yeah. Why do you feel duped? With January 6th. I cannot prove it was a setup, but I feel like, what if it was? Rachel isn't alone. A quarter of Americans believe the conspiracy theory the January 6th attack was instigated by the FBI. People watching this might say, well, you were duped by Trump and everybody around him and the election wasn't really stolen and you buying into this has kind of ruined your life. Do you ever feel a bit pissed off with Trump? No. Absolutely not. I don't. I've had problems with this election process for years and years. 15 years ago, if there would have been protests about election fraud, I would have gone to those because our whole country and everything about our lives is determined by voting. Surely in the last three years being locked in here, have you ever had a moment where you're like, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Biden actually won the election. Maybe I'm the conspiracy theorist. No, not at all. She's due to spend the next few years behind bars, but she believes one man could change that. So this hat says, Rachel, we love you. Trump, my three of my sons, they met Trump and um, you can actually see them one of the times here. Trump was very encouraging to them. He's made it clear he's going to pardon us. There's a lot riding on this election. Totally. For the country, but also personally for you. Oh man, for me it's huge. For me it's like life or death. <laughs> yeah, it's huge. If Trump wins, you could get out of prison. Correct, I will get out of prison. Uh, it's amazing to me, although it shouldn't be, that you know, she spent three years locked up in her home and she could have done some research and she continues to believe things which are demonstrably false and just lies. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's pathetic. 
And look, it's amazing she is teaching her children this as well. I mean, and, I'm, I'm stunned. I mean, what makes Rachel Sorrell more incredible also is she didn't even vote for Trump in 2016. Um, she wasn't particularly politically active. She didn't really believe in voting for a while. It was COVID, the lockdown. She said that she started going to anti-lockdown protests. That led to Stop the Steal. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, brought her to January 6th, where, look, I mean, she claims um, that the axe was placed into her hand and everything else. And she doesn't view this uh, as an insurrection. Clearly, uh, of course, disagrees. But look, Anderson, I think a lot of our viewers, and I certainly already know from some of our viewers who comment online, ask, why, why are we speaking to somebody like Rachel Powell? Mm. Um, the reality is, is that she's not alone. Um, the I, I find it informative to hear from her. I mean, it, it's yeah. telling about a... a a mentality and psychology of some people who are supporting the former president and why. Yeah, the, and the falsehoods about the election are believed by tens of millions yeah. of Americans. And now, of course, you even see the conspiracy theories about the day itself. Right, her whole being duped thing. I mean, Donna Sullivan, fascinating. Thank you. Just ahead, presidential politics. Can Nikki Haley close the gap in New Hampshire with the former president? New CNN poll numbers and John King at the Magic Wall with all the details next. One night before CNN hosts the last Republican presidential debate before Monday's Iowa caucuses, Nikki Haley was in the suburbs of Des Moines telling a crowd today that everything, quote, has come to this moment. Haley having a moment of her own as a new CNN poll suggests she's cut the former president's once daunting lead in New Hampshire to single digits. That primary comes eight days, of course, after Iowa. John King joins us now at the Magic Wall with the numbers. So how much has Haley gained on the former president of New Hampshire? Numbers are stunning, Anderson. Let me flip this up and show you. New Hampshire, you mentioned Iowa's first. Next Monday, we count the votes in Iowa. Two weeks from tonight, we count the votes here in New Hampshire. Remember, back in 2016, this was Trump's first win. This was the beginning of the path to the nomination for Donald Trump. New Hampshire was kind to Donald Trump. So look at these new numbers in this poll, and it is quite striking when you see it. Nikki Haley within seven points, 39% for the former president, 32% for the former South Carolina governor, Chris Christie a distant third, Ramaswamy running fourth, Ron DeSantis in low single digits in fifth, Asa Hutchinson just barely an asterisk in this poll. But think about that. She's within seven points in this poll. So Iowa will send her on to New Hampshire. The question is with how much momentum. And one quick point, Anderson, we say this all the time, but in New Hampshire especially, the composition of the electorate two weeks from tonight, excuse me from turning my back, will be absolutely critical. In New Hampshire, Democrats, independents, their undeclared voters can show up on election day, essentially declare yourself a Republican for the day and vote in Republican primary. If it's a, if it's a conservative electorate, Trump will win. Among conservatives, he's up over Haley by 40 points. Among registered Republicans, he beats Haley by 37 points. Among voters with no college degrees, we know that's the Trump base, he's up by 17 points. But look at this. Among moderates, Haley beats Trump by 42 points. Among undeclared voters, meaning independents, by 26 points. Among those with a college degree, 12 points. So who shows up, the full composition of the electorate in New Hampshire is going to go a long way to say whether Nikki Haley can come close or conceivably even beat Donald Trump. Stay, uh, Iowa caucuses are six days away. What's right. the state of play there? Right. So let's come back to that. Let's come back to 2024 and just bring Iowa up on the map. Because, again, Monday night we start doing this, right? The candidates are listed in alphabetical order. We actually get to stop talking about this and start counting votes as we get through it. Uh, this is where Trump has had in the polling a formidable lead and for some time. Again, excuse me for turning my back, but I want to stretch this out. The last Iowa poll was a month ago. Trump was at 51 percent. 
Five months ago, he was at 42 percent. So Donald Trump, pretty straight line, strong support, above 50 percent in the Iowa poll. I've been on the ground in Iowa. Some people don't question this. But Nikki Haley, a distant second there. I mean, distant third, excuse me, DeSantis there. So at the moment, if, if the data is correct, Trump gets a big first win. There are people on the ground in Iowa who say they think they can get him under 50 percent. Is there a path forward for DeSantis without a strong showing in Iowa? So remember, Joe Biden lost the first three contests in 2020. He lost Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada. He's president of the United States. So we should never say no. Uh, But in the context of the Republican primary, Ron DeSantis, what was his calling card? I'm Trump without the chaos. If Trump is beating him and Nikki Haley is beating him coming out of Iowa, it gets pretty hard. He says he's in this. He says he's not getting out. But if Haley can beat DeSantis in Iowa, then the question is, Anderson, it's going to be a lot of pressure on DeSantis, Christie, and others to get out and give Haley a clear shot at Trump in New Hampshire. All right, John King, stay with us. I want to bring in longtime Democratic strategist James Carville. James, at this point, do you think anyone has a real shot at defeating the former president in the primaries? Not much. And, and I mean, and John's exactly right about New Hampshire. Remember, independence vote is very hard to sample that. The other thing is, I, will, I think it's eight days before New Hampshire. That's going to have some effect on the New Hampshire numbers. How much, I don't know. Uh, and He's right. Never say no. But when it comes to Ron DeSantis, I'm just going to say no. A governor, I mean, James, I mean, is DeSantis in, at play still in your mind? I mean, the latest scene in polling has him behind Christie and Vivek Ramaswamy in New Hampshire. Yeah. But of course, I'm the guy that said I, I didn't think Trump was going to be the Republican nominee. So be careful. <laughs> my predictive skills are <laughs> somewhat rusty these days. But, but John's been around. He's got it exactly right. But remember, and John will tell you this, when they go to South Carolina, Independence can't vote. Mm. And, and that's Nikki Haley's state, and it's pretty clear that Trump will beat her there, and then she's going to have to make a case beyond that, which is going to be, I think, pretty difficult. John, Ambassador Haley has not only been making gains in New Hampshire, also had a full crowd at her, uh, her uh, commit to caucus event today in Iowa, despite a pretty big snowstorm. Does that indicate anything to you? Well, it indicates that people are at least interested. Uh, James knows this well, and it's good to see my old friend. It's been a long time. Uh, you know, people show up there, so sometimes you can't make it out for the crowd. Sometimes people show up for events uh, who just want to see the candidates. But I just highlighted right here the suburban counties. The gray you see, the darker gray, the lighter gray, excuse me, are suburban counties in Iowa. We know the suburbs are Donald Trump's kryptonite. They have been. He, did, he beat Hillary Clinton in the suburbs in 2016, but since then, that's been his kryptonite. Again, in New Hampshire, I, and James made the point, you know, independents, moderates, do they show up for a Republican primary? If so, it probably helps Haley. Who shows up in Iowa? More than 60,000 people have moved to the Des Moines suburbs since the 2016 race, right? They're not all Republicans, but do they, but uh, those who are Republicans show up. You see the suburbs around Sioux City, around Cedar Falls, around Dubuque. That's where Haley has a chance to beat Trump. That would be an earthquake. But to come out maybe surprisingly close, it is mathematically possible. The flip side of that is Across the top up here, across the bottom down here, those are the evangelical rural counties that Ted Cruz actually beat Donald Trump in 2016. Trump is expected to run it up there. If DeSantis is going to surprise us, that's where that will come, among homeschoolers, among evangelicals. There's no evidence of that at the moment in any real strong, sustained way. But again, right now we're in the pregame. When we see who actually shows up Monday in Iowa and then two weeks from tonight in New Hampshire, that will tell us a lot about which Republicans are deciding to come out, especially if the weather's bad, because they want to make a statement about who leads their party. And James, President Biden has made the former president's efforts to overturn the election the centerpiece of his reelection campaign. Is that a smart strategy in your mind? Your mind? Well, it's not a strategy, yes. I mean, you know, we did Bidenomics and we did democracy. Now we're, and I, I, I mean, it, 
I don't have a, 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 a problem at all. What I'm going to do is take this opportunity to make a further fool of myself and predict that Trump will underperform expectations in Iowa. I think the opposition, the Mr. Vanderplatz, I don't know my, very little about Republican primary caucus voters in Iowa, but they seem to me to be pretty well organized and pretty committed. And there's going to be zero degrees. And I, I'll just go out there and say, I think he'll, I'm not saying he's going to lose, but I, I, he might not win by as much as expected. Mm. That, James Carville uh, would be watching. John King as well. Thanks very much. Again, the last debate ahead of the Iowa caucuses tomorrow night here on CNN, a showdown between two candidates, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. CNN's Jake Tapper and Dana Bash going to moderate uh, tomorrow night's event, which kicks off at 9 p.m. Eastern. Still ahead, this, take a look, this chunk of a Boeing plane landed in our next guest's backyard. It's the piece that blew out of the Alaska Airlines plane mid-flight. It's forced an entire line of Boeing planes grounded. Today, Boeing's CEO spoke to staff about a mistake details when we come back. All There Is with Anderson Cooper is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Grief is a human experience. Shouldn't the care we receive feel human too? That's why Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support anytime, in person or virtually, with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure that they get the help that they need. So no matter what stage of grief your employees may be in, there's always a person ready to listen. Stressful times can lead many to bottle up complex feelings, especially at work. 59% of those suffering say nothing. This can have unexpected and serious mental and physical health implications. And with Evernorth's data-driven risk monitoring tools, they can help spot challenges early and step in to guide individuals to care before they undergo any more suffering. Each person's grief is as unique as they are, which is why Evernorth offers a wide range of personalized behavioral solutions to meet the needs of every member that they serve. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, New friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Breaking news to report a source at Boeing tells CNN that during an all-hands meeting today at a factory that produces its trouble 737 MAX 9, the CEO of the company acknowledged a mistake in the plane's assembly process. It's unclear if he identified a specific mistake in that manufacturing process. The mission comes four days after a Boeing 737 MAX 9 flown by Alaska Airlines lost a chunk of the cabin mid-flight, leaving a door-sized hole in the plane and forcing an emergency landing. About 171 of the same models were uh, soon grounded. Since then, United Airlines says it found loose bolts for that same panel called a door plug in some of its own 737 MAX 9s. Now, the NTSB, which is leading the investigation to how all this happened, said this weekend that the door plug was found in the backyard of a man named Bob Sauer, a uh, science teacher who lives in the suburbs of Portland, Oregon. And Bob joins me now. Thank you so much for, for being with us. I mean, as a science teacher, this is kind of right up your alley. It's fascinating and amazing that you found it. And so is what a good citizen you are that you and all your neighbors in your community went out looking for these pieces. What made you decide to go out and, and look in that spot? Well, I hadn't uh, intended to. I knew that the piece was somewhere around Portland, but didn't figure it was near 
me, but a friend of mine called me and said, maybe I should check my yard uh, because the, f- the search was focusing in my area. And when I went out to look for it, in fact, there it was. And you, it was up in a tree. Is that right? Well, it had fallen through a tree. It had made it to the ground, but the tree helped break its fall so that uh, when it got down, uh, the fall doesn't seem to have damaged it any. Did you know right away what you were looking at? I, I knew pretty quickly. I, I, it was night when I found it. It was very dark in my backyard. As you can see, there's some big trees back there. Um, and so I had my flashlight out. And it was the opposite side of the door I could see from what you are. I had the out, exterior paint on it. So it was quite, uh, quite um, reflective in the, in the dark. So I could see it right away. And I very quickly figured out what it was. What was the reaction from the NTSB when you contacted them? Um, well, the the the, uh, the chair had just finished giving a press briefing, and she was so excited she ran back in uh, to tell the the uh, journalists who were still there about it. Um, and she only announced me as Bob um, from Portland, a teacher from Portland. But people very quickly figured out I was the Bob, <laughs> and they actually came. They're still here in Portland and came and talked to my classes and some other students at my school today. Oh, that's so cool. They were very outgoing and, and very uh, friendly. What, what, how old are your students? I teach high school level. Oh, that's so cool. What an incredible, I mean, just educational opportunity this is. Um, Bob Sauer, thank you so much. It's lovely to talk to you. You're welcome. Thank you. Wish you the best. Coming up for the new episode of my podcast, All There Is, I had a remarkable conversation the other day with actress, author, uh, activist, Ashley Judd, whose mother, country music superstar Naomi Judd, died by suicide in 2022. Ashley speaks about the grief and trauma she's experienced after finding her mom and what she said to her at the end. Tomorrow morning, a new episode of my podcast about grief called All There Is is being released. It's a very moving and intimate conversation with actor, author, and activist Ashley Judd about the death of her mom, Naomi Judd, by suicide in 2022. Ashley found her mom and speaks to the ripple effects the suicide of a loved one can have on a person and a family. Take a look. On April 11th, 2022, Naomi Judd and her daughter Winona, one of the biggest country duos of all time, performed at the Country Music Television Awards. The song, co-written by Naomi, was Love Can Build a Bridge. This was Naomi Judd's last performance. She died 19 days later by suicide. Her daughter, Ashley, actress, author, and mental health advocate, first spoke about it in this interview just 12 days later. Because we don't want it to be a part of the gossip economy, I will share with you that she used a weapon. Mother used a firearm. Ashley Judd has never spoken publicly in depth about those final moments of her mother's life and the trauma and grief she's been living with until now. I sat down with her a few days ago for my podcast, All There Is. My mother's death was traumatic and unexpected because it was death by suicide. And I found her. My grief was was in lockstep with trauma because of the manner of her death and, and, the, and the fact that I found her. I held my mother as she was dying and there was blood. And I just needed to like process the fact that I was with my mother's blood. 
I'm so glad I was there because even when I walked in that room and I saw that she had harmed herself, the first thing out of my mouth was, Mama, I see how much you've been suffering. You said and that And it too. is okay. It is okay to go. It's okay to go. I am here. It is okay to let go. I love you. Go see your daddy. Go see Papa Judd. Go be with your people. And she heard you. Oh, she heard me. And I just got in the bed with her and held her and talked to her and said, let it all go. Be free. All was forgiven long ago. All was forgiven long ago. Leave it all here. Take nothing with you. Just be free. It's an extraordinary blessing that you were able to do that. Oh, it was, I'm so thankful I was there. One of the reasons I wanted to talk with Ashley from my podcast was that I still struggle with my brother Carter's suicide 35 years ago. One of the things that, um... I'm here, Anderson. One of the things I uh, have found so hard about... One of the things I've found so hard about losing my brother to suicide was a, the, the... I get stuck in how his life ended. And the violence of it. And he killed himself in front of my mom. And, um, and also the realization that, and my shock over it, and the realization that I didn't really know him. And I'm wondering if the manner of your mom's death made you question how much you knew her. Thank you so much for sharing that. All our stories are sacred. And I really honor the place in you that that's coming from. And I think we all deserve to be remembered for how we lived. And how we died is simply part of a bigger story. My conversation with Ashley Judd about grief, trauma, and how her mother's spirit is still very much alive in her life is available Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you or someone you love are struggling, help is available. Please call or text the Nationwide Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. The new episode of All There Is, featuring my full conversation with Ashley Judd, comes out tomorrow morning. You can find it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Just ahead, new information about why the Secretary of Defense checked into a hospital New Year's Day without telling the White House until days later. A late update tonight on Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. Doctors at Walter Reed National Medical Center are saying that despite complications that landed him in the intensive care unit, his prognosis after prostate cancer surgery is good. They said that Secretary Austin, who's 70, was readmitted to the hospital on New Year's Day after having minimally invasive surgery December 22nd. Doctors found a buildup of fluid that was impairing the function of his small intestines. The fluid was drained, and his doctors say he's on the mend. Prostate cancer is the second most common cancer in men in the United States. 
According to the National Cancer Institute, about 13% or one in eight American men will be diagnosed with it in their lifetime. About 2.5% will die of it, and the disease is riskier in black men. As to the question of why no one in the White House was made aware of this, that is apparently still under investigation. That's it for us. The news continues. The Source with Caitlin Collins starts now. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there, guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there, guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. 